Well, as we get into the Word of God here this morning, there was a time when a pastor got up in front of his church and he was talking about perfection. And he said, is anyone here perfect or know anyone who is perfect? And the place was quiet. No one really said much, did anything. So he asked again, he said, does anyone, does anyone in this room consider themselves to be perfect or know anyone who is perfect? And finally, one man in the back stood up. And the pastor looked at the man and he said, surely, sir, you don't consider yourself to be perfect. He says, no. He says, no, I don't. I know I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm full of imperfect things. But I thought someone ought to stand up for my wife's first husband. <laughs> mm. Yes, indeed. We're talking about what we practice, we perfect. What we practice, we perfect, as we've been on this section of the series, looking about getting ready, training day, we, we call it, that day that God is training you up for, that day that you are getting ready for, maybe one day, maybe two days, maybe three days, but God is calling you to something. We saw that Joseph was called into some things, and when the day came, he was ready and he, he stood up to the challenge. But all up until that day came, he kept doing the same Routine, the same thing over and over and over and over, but it got him ready. It got him ready for what was going. And he eventually hit a day of promotion, and he was promoted into being second in charge of the whole kingdom. Daniel was given a day, and he was promoted. And then he was promoted again, and thought about, king thought about putting the whole realm under him. What we didn't notice about this, didn't mention this to you before, but each time that these guys faced a training day, each time these guys faced a day in which everything was put on, uh, on a test and they were promoted, they were elevated, what was mundane became something different. But it, eventually it became the same routine again. When Joseph was a, was a slave, he did the same thing in Potiphar's house. When he went to the prison, he learned a new routine, but he eventually began to do the same thing. When he became king over the, not king over the land, but he became second in charge over the land, it was a different routine, but then after a while, it was the same routine over and over and over. Get more stuff, store more stuff. Go get some more. Find places to store it. Go get some more. Find places to store it. He did that for seven years. Until things changed again. You may face a promotion day, an elevation day, in, in which what you're doing normally changes. But you still have to do what you're doing with the utmost fervency. Go after it. Just know, Father God, you are getting me ready for what is to come. We're going to take a look at a, a story. We've looked at this over the years a number of times. It kind of teaches us a a lot of things, but what we want to get from this is there are some things that we are practicing and we are becoming perfect at. Some of them are good and some of them are not. We have to make sure that we practice the things that we, we should be and we should be doing. Now, just to give you a little bit of a heads up here, uh, we're, we're going to get into some areas that uh, we don't always get into here at church. But uh, it's going to be necessary for us to, to get into it. I've actually had this sitting in, in me for, for a number of weeks now. I think today we're finally going to get into it. So I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is, but you'll know it when we get there. First Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash, and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people were sent, he sent away every man to his tent, and Jonathan attacked the garrison of the first Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people, like they liked them a whole lot before that. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. 
and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed. Would you be distressed? Then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Paul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. He offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and he, and that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? It's never good when someone that you know real well, when they come out to greet them, says first thing out of their mouth, what have you done? I mean, think about coming home and your spouse is there. And as soon as you get uh, close to the door, they're not even waiting for you to get into the house. They're just looking at the door. What have you done? You know something. I don't know what I did, but man, mm, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, that you did not come with the days within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled, and I offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to, uh, to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Well, that's not very many, is it? Surely there's some other folks that are around that they can probably gather up, but uh, nothing like the sand of the seashore. It's, uh, it's going to be tough. So, so we, we, we've looked at this story a number of times. I put in your outline this. Prepared people... Perform. Isn't that right? If you are prepared, when you are called upon, you can perform. If you are on a musical instrument and you have prepared, you have practiced the piece, you have made yourself ready, then when the people call, come on up and play, you can, you can play, you can perform. You can get in there and do the thing. If you, uh, you're a sports person, you're a basketball player, a baseball player, and you've been practicing and practicing and practicing the day for the game comes. You can step up to the plate. You can step up to the foul line. You can do whatever it is that you need to do. And you can perform because you're prepared. But if you don't prepare, you don't perform, do you? Put it to you this way. Prepared people perform. Unprepared people explain. Isn't that right? I mean, if you're prepared, you just go out there and you do it. If you're not prepared and you go out there and you mess up, what do you do? You, you begin to explain why you didn't, well, you know, it was so-and-so's fault and, you know, these guys didn't do their part and the referees and the coaches and the, all this other stuff, right? But what do prepared people do? They just go out there and do it. When Daniel was called upon to interpret the dream, but get to get the dream, he didn't sit there and complain. Explain why he couldn't do it. He just went out there and performed. The people before him, the wise people, and the, they couldn't come up with it. They, they're trying to explain to the king why this can't be done. But Daniel just went out there and did it. Prepared people perform. Unprepared people explain. Which group are you going to be in? If you're sitting around making an explanation to God, just tell yourself, I did not prepare. That's all there is to it. If you have to explain to God why something didn't work, why you weren't why you didn't do what you're supposed to do, just simply say, God, I wasn't prepared. Just simply say that. I wasn't prepared. Don't try and come up with an explanation. It ain't going to work. Because we've, just in the few examples we looked at so far, you will see that God spends years preparing people for what's to come. When the day comes, there's no room for excuses. We don't want to hear an explanation. We just want to see you get it done. He needs to, he needs to count on you. So he comes up to him and says, what have you done? Well, when I saw that the people, right, not me, the people, and that you did not come. 
So it's the people's fault and it's your fault. And the Philistines gathered. See, the, the Philistines too, they're involved. So I, everybody's against me. The Philistines are against me. The people are against me. And you're against me. What am I supposed to do? Then I said, mm-hmm, yeah, that's not, the, that's not what we should do. I'm putting this in, when we've covered this story before, I've put this in your outline before, but I'll put it in here again for you. Because it's something that we need to get hold of. What is unfaithful in God's eyes can usually be viewed as faithful in man's. What is unfaithful in God's eyes can usually be viewed as faithful in man's. How many times have we looked at someone in the body of Christ and say, well, that's a faithful person, and God says, they are not faithful. They are not doing what I said to do. Now, you look at Saul, and if you know the end of the story, you know that Saul goes out there, and a great victory comes to Israel, and you think, wow, what a faithful king. Well, he just did what God wanted to do. No, he was unfaithful. So a victory was still produced. I put this in your outline for you, too. Just because things worked doesn't mean things were right. Just because it worked doesn't mean that it's, uh, that's the way it ought to be done. Have you ever seen those uh, pictures they put on Facebook and other places? You know, people do some things to, to fix something. Uh, the, you, you see the, door, the car door is fixed. And you look at what they did to fix it. And he said, dear Lord, <laughs> how are they allowed to drive on the, on the road with that thing in that condition? Right? Uh, they've had all kinds of, but they're kind of fun. Just because things work doesn't mean that things were right. We have to go beyond what is seen and know what God says about it. What did God say to do? What did God call you to do? What did God say? This is what I need to have done. It needs to be done this way. It needs to go out in this direction. But we don't do that. We just look at the end result. Don't, don't be doing that. Now, put this in your outline too. Formulas often produce partial obedience. There's a lot of people who worship God with formulas. This is what Saul's doing. In order for us to have victory in the battle, we must offer the sacrifices. That's the formula. Formula is sacrifices must be offered. That's what we have to do. So he's looking at the formula. And when you look at the formula, you have partial obedience. Because he was supposed to wait for Saul or Samuel. He didn't wait for Samuel long enough. He waited until the seventh day, but then he got a little nervous. And on the seventh day, he came. Isn't that what he said? On the seventh day, I'll come? On the seventh day, he came, but apparently wasn't quite soon enough. When we operate in this area, partial obedience, all we see is that something needs to be done. That's all we see, that something needs to be done. Just because you see that something needs to be done doesn't mean that you should do it or that you have the right idea what to do. Saul could see that the sacrifices need to be done, but it didn't mean that he needed to do it. We're going to jump on over here to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. <clears throat> if you go through the rest of the story there, you'll see that uh, God was not happy with Saul. And uh, he said, I rejected him. From uh, I'm going to find somebody else. Just on, now, what, this is really really interesting thing about this. When God picked Saul, he looked at all the people in the land, and he said, Saul's the best qualified. Let's get him. And he puts him into place. And as soon as Saul messes up, what's he do? I got a replacement. I got her. He already got a replacement. He didn't need to go find a replacement until Saul disqualified himself. But as soon as Saul disqualified himself, I got somebody else. We're not, we're not invaluable to God. God can find somebody else. Just like Elijah. I got 7,000 others who are ready to step into your role right now. All you need to do is move aside. You think you're all that? <laughs> tell you what. Samuel also said to Saul in verse 1 of chapter 15... The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. God's going to give him an assignment. How many of I mean, your bosses come up to you and giving you an assignment? How many of you would like it if the, the boss of the company were to come into your office, come into where you're working, your little cubicle or your, your place where you stay, whatever it is that you work, he comes over to you, the boss of the whole company comes over to you and he says, I need you to do something. Is that cool? Not just your boss, the boss. The boss comes and he says, I need you to do something. I mean, if it's a big company, you're just surprised that he even knows you're there. You're just shocked that he or she, whoever it might be, that, hey, they, they even know, I didn't even know that you knew I was here. 
but you have an assignment for me? You, you see that there's something I can do? How many of you would take special care to make sure that that assignment that the boss gave you would get done? Yeah, you would make sure to do that. So Samuel, who is the prophet of God, the spokesman of God, comes to Saul and he says, God has given you an assignment. He's given you an ass- he has an assignment he wants you to do. I'm getting my attention. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Now he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Is there anything unclear about that? Two verses. One big long sentence. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into Amalek. I want you to kill everything that you see. Man, woman. Old, young. Donkey. Camel. Don't matter. You see it. What do you do with it? Kill it. it. If you see something moving, what are you supposed to do? Kill it. it. Stop it from moving. (laughs) It needs to die. Doesn't matter. Whatever. Big, small. Rich, poor, it don't matter. He, God does not care. He says, I want them all gone. We're going to punish them. They did something to Egypt when they were coming out and they attacked them. They attacked my people. I let them go here for a little while. They haven't repented of that yet. I want you to go in there. I want you to wipe them all out. Take them all out. That's God's assignment. I mean, look at it again. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. All that they have. And do not spare them. He's repeating himself, right? Go and attack. Utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman. Infant, nursing child. Ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. I want you to take them all out. Kill them. Didn't say anything about taking any prisoners. He said, kill them all. God's assignments are usually pretty easy to understand. So he gets the assignment. And we know from things here, what's he do? He spares the best. He spares the king. He spares the best people, the best oxen, the best camels, the best of them. He doesn't kill them all. So he gets an assignment from God, thus says the Lord. And it's time to perform. It's time for Saul to step up. It's time for him to, he's being called on. You know, if you are a basketball player and the coach calls you, you're you're sitting on the bench and it's a critical time in the game, scores tied, and the coach says, come here. I need you to do something. You take off your warm-up suit. And you go over there and he gives you the assignment. I want you to do this. Whatever it might be. It might be a defensive move. It might be an offensive move. Whatever it is, he wants you to do it. He's calling on you. Of all the people he's got on the team, he is calling on you. You've got some talent. You've got something that you can do. And he's putting you out there at a critical time because he wants you to do something. Right? So you, you, you listen carefully. The assignment. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do this thing? What am I supposed to, to get done? He, he's calling on you to perform. Have you ever done this and not performed? Come on, we've done that. I remember one time my coach called on me and I didn't perform. It's my second year across country. I worked harder than anyone else over the summer. I was the only one who came in shape. I was running mega miles. I ran races. I was prepared. I came into camp. I was in better shape than anyone. I would run the route 8 miles, 10 miles, 12 miles, whatever the route was, whatever we did. I would run the route, come back, cool down, take a shower, and be dressed before the next guy would even come in. That's how far ahead I was of them. Now, they were were much talented, much more talented, much better, and eventually they caught up. (laughs) But for a while, it felt good. And so we got to the first race we had that year. First race we had... For this thing, it was an away race. I still remember the, the course. 
They had taken us over this course. It was the nastiest course I'd ever seen. We actually ran part of this course over a dried up creek bed. Rocks and all sorts of stuff. And it, it was tough. But they took us to this one spot and it had a hill. It was a nasty, it was a cross country hill. It was not a hill you could drive up with a car, a bike, a motorcycle, anything like that. It was a cross country hill. You'd only encounter this in your in running cross country. You had to go up it on your hands and knees. You could not run up it. You basically had to climb up this hill. It was a very intimidating hill. And the coach called me aside. And he said, Steve, this is what I need from you. All right, coach, what do you need? He says, you're in better shape than anyone here. You've prepared yourself. You've gotten yourself ready. This is what I need you to do. I need you to run hard all the way up until that time when you get to, to that hill. When you hit that hill, you hit it as, as hard as you can. You get up that hill. When you get at the top of that hill, I want you to take off. Okay. So that was my assignment. So I kept thinking. I'm thinking this whole thing. I got to run up to the hill with everything I got, get up to the hill, go up the hill hard, and then when I get up to the top of the hill, what are you going to be when you get up to the top of the hill? Exhausted, tired. When you get up to the top of the hill, I just kept hearing his words, Take off. And so I, I did it the best that I thought I could anyway. I ran hard all the way up into that hill. I went up that hill real, real hard. I got up to the hill. There was everything in my body was screaming. I was, oh man, I am, this has really taxed me to the, to the end. And then, uh, and I put everything in that I could and I took off. The guy behind me says, what happened to you when you got on top of that hill? I thought I was going to catch you and you just took off. Here's the problem. I didn't win the race. I had a lot of people in front of me. I had people from my own team in front of me. I didn't win the race. My coach never gave me an assignment after that. That was it. I didn't perform to the degree I should. See, there's, there's something about running that most people don't know. Running is mostly mental. It's not physical. You look at it and you think physical. It's not physical. It's mostly mental. You think, yeah, but you got to... Yeah, there's a physical aspect of it. But there's a mental side that you will never experience or know about until you actually get involved with it. And there's different levels of being mentally ready. I was not mentally ready. My second year, I learned a whole lot more about how to get mentally ready for a race than I did before. And I worked my way to try and, and, and perfect that. And uh, by the end of the year, I was doing, doing better. But Coach still never gave me any... And he, in fact, at the end of the year, we had a little awards banquet. I was voted the most improved runner on the team. And the coach was giving out the awards in front of the whole school, calling out the different people for the different awards. Most valuable runner, and that was not me. It was not the most valuable runner. Um, most improved runner, he called my name for that. On the way up, he called my name. He says, uh, yeah, we got a, uh, uh, guys voted for who's the most improved runner. And he called my name out. He said, I didn't vote for him. <laughs> that was my coach, man. That was my coach. He sent me a letter when we were getting ready for the third year. He said some, some things in there. I threw the letter away. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was actually trying to be complimentary on that one. and He, was, uh, he, didn't, he, didn't, really, he didn't become the influential person that he could have been in my life, but uh, I let him down. I didn't step up. And you know, they have those times and you didn't step up. You didn't quite uh, come through. It's, uh, it's disappointing. It's hard. But God wants us to be ready, both physically and mentally. And Saul is not ready. Why isn't he ready? He has gone through all the things that God has given him. When, he called, when God called him, Remember the one statement God makes about him? When I called you, you were small in your own eyes. And now you're big. Something changed. See, he practiced the wrong things. Sometimes, folks, we are practicing the wrong things and getting real good at the wrong things. You've got to be careful. You've got to do the right things. Verse 4. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and to lay him, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city in Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest they destroy you with them. It's only after the one. 
For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Malachites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Hevelah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were willing to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So they altered the plan a little bit. You know, they got there and said, well, you know, I'm sure God didn't know how good this thing here was. If he knew how good this was, he probably would have wanted us to, to, to keep it. You know, you can begin to think, you know, I could, just that little bit that they got, I mean, that really would help me out. I could make that uh, car payment. I could buy that house. Now, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now, you can keep reading that story if you want to. Uh, we're going to read a little bit further, but if you get on further and down, God's going to eventually rebuke him for mourning over him for a little bit too long. Verse 12. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of the oxen which I hear? It seems to be that most times people disobey God. They brag about what they do. They brag about what they did. If you ever hear somebody bragging about what they did for God, just pretty much know they probably know they missed it. Because the people who do what God says to do in the Bible, how many of them go around bragging about it? They don't do it. But the ones who miss it, look how zealous I am for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, Oh, oh that, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, they, 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 not me, they. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. <laughs> last night, the Lord spoke to him. He didn't need to get in there and hear the bleeding of sheep. He, he already knew last night. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel said to, Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder. But they, the people, they took of the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Folks, God considered it to be rejecting his word. If we do not listen to what he said, if we do not value what he said, if we do not hold dear all the things that he said to do, he sees it as rejection. Not just, oh, he just didn't see that as that important. Mm -mm. Rejection. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. That'd be good if he would have stopped there. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, 
I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, <clears throat> Then he said, I have sinned. Well, here we go again. Yet honor me now, because, uh, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. We see both times he is more concerned with other people are going to think than he is of the fact that he has sinned before God. That's again rejecting the word of the Lord. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. And Samuel said to, to bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made woman childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel, who is, what's Samuel? He's the prophet of God. The prophet of God hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. <laughs> do you think the Lord was pleased? Absolutely. That's what he wanted Saul to do and Saul didn't do it. What's interesting was Saul before stepped into Samuel's role. And now Samuel is stepping into Saul's role. Saul stepped into Samuel's role because he thought Samuel, or Samuel was late. Samuel stepped into Saul's role because he was disobedient. See the difference? He stepped into the role and he, he didn't just kill him. He hacked him in pieces. Prophet of God. Probably got his robe dirty. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The next chapter that comes up, he's, uh, God's going to kind of kick him. Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for this? I told you I rejected him. Now get up. I've got something for you to do. i got an assignment for you. We've given you this before. But I wanted to give it to you again just uh, to make sure that you, you remember this. <coughs> Partial obedience is caused by a few things. First off, partial obedience is caused by ignorance. Partial obedience is caused by ignorance. Basically, I don't know. Here's some verses on Acts chapter 3, verse 14. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him, this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as did your fathers. If you want another verse on that, Ephesians 4, 4 17 through 24. You can see uh, ignorance is the cause of something. I didn't know. I partially obeyed because I didn't know. Right? There's one, one bit when you don't know and you did it, that can be cured. Ignorance can be cured. Here's the second one, neglect. Neglect a little bit more severe here. <clears throat> Basically, I don't care. Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? How long will you neglect they're neglecting it. They knew that to go. They knew what to do. They knew where the land was. They had the command from God, but they didn't do it. They're neglecting it. First Timothy 4, verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, whom the Lord, with the Lord, laying on of hands of the eldership. Folks, sometimes we are guilty of neglecting the gift in us, and we come up with all kinds of reasons for it. But you're still neglecting it. That's still going to result in partial obedience. Here's the third one. Fear. Basically, I can't. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. Matthew 14.30 But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus snatched or stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Mark 5 and 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. Fear comes in and makes us think, I can't. 
Here's the last one. This is the worst. Distrust. I'm not sure. Psalm 18, verse 34. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all those who trust in Him. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. He shall bring it to pass. Trust. Sometimes we are in partial obedience because we distrust God. What keeps people from tithing when they know the Word of God says to tithe? Well, God, I'm just going to give you this much. Why? Because I don't trust Him to do the rest. There's a distrust that comes in. I put this in your outline. It's important to get. Trust is not a lack of fear and uncertainty. Trust is not a lack of fear and uncertainty, but the presence of obedience and steadfastness. Don't feel like, if, well, I got some, some uncertainty in, in me, but I'm still going to step out there and do this thing. Good. That's what you need to do. It is built through the little things, so we are ready for the big things. It's built through the little things. God is going to do a whole lot of little things with you to build that trust, so when you hit the big thing, you're ready. That's the whole idea. Now, here's this thing. We become good at the wrong things. Saul became good at doing things his way. When he came to that big day and God gave him assignment, he has already practiced doing it his way. When Samuel didn't come, which way did he do it? His way, not God's way. That's not the first time. How many of y'all know? That's not the first time he's done it his way. Before he was called to be king, the Word of God said he was small in his eyes. Then things changed. He became prideful. became full of himself. He saw himself as bigger. He practiced doing things his way and not God's way. By the time he got to the assignment that God had for him, could have been a big day for him. Turned out to be not so good. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't where he needed to be. Now, here's a question for you. What things have you become good at that you really shouldn't be? You can write in whatever you want to in here, but I'll give you a couple of ideas. Sometimes we can get real good at lying. Right? I'm not supposed to be good at it. How do you get good at lying? You practice. The more you practice, the better you get. Uh, we can get real good at finding comfort in the wrong things. How many times have we come, come home from a rough day at work or some big emotional thing hit us and we find comfort in something other than what we're supposed to find comfort in? What should we find comfort in? The Word of God, put on some worship music, worship the Lord, study His Word, declare His Word. Instead, here, I'm not saying anybody here says this. I'm just, you know, if you watch movies and things like this. Well, if somebody has a hard day, they come home, what do they say? I need a drink. I need a drink. Why? Is that drink going to help you? See, you practice, and the people who do that, they come home, they've had a hard day, I need a drink. What do they do? They're practicing. When I have a hard day, I need a drink. And pretty soon, hard days become easier and easier. Yeah. yeah that, that was a hard day. Really? What happened? Well, I don't know. It's just, it was hard. It was hard. I just know it was hard. It was a hard day. I need, I need a drink. We have a hard day. We feel like we've got to cuss somebody out. That's, that's not a good way to do it. We're finding comfort in the wrong things. That's, that's not what you should be doing. Find comfort in the Word of God. Find comfort doing it, the, doing it God's way. I told you before, I don't, I don't drink because I don't like the smell or the taste of it. But I didn't practice enough to learn it. I just learned right away I don't like it. But I was determined, more so than anything else, I was determined because I heard people, even my, when I was in uh, at high school and stuff like that, I heard kids, you know, they needed, to, they needed to smoke, they needed to drink, they needed to cuss. That, and I determined, I, I'm not going to need those things. Never did. Just determined it. I remember one time... I was in the backyard uh, with a, a good friend of mine at the time. Don't even know where he is anymore. 
by the time we were, you all, we did all kinds of stuff together. We weren't too far apart in houses. And I was over at his house and we were doing something and he banged his hand with a hammer. And his dad was, his dad was not nice. I did not like his dad. I didn't want to be around his dad. I preferred his dad just stay in the house or go to work. Or we just come over to my house. I didn't like his dad. His dad was just nasty. He was mean. He was harsh. For some reason, though, we were out there. We were doing something, the three of us together, and he banged his hand. And, uh, and, and his name was John. John was doing his best, you know, just to, oh, man. Oh, oh. And his father just stood up and says, boy, don't just stand there. Cuss. <laughs> Told him that. And so then he did. He's practicing doing this kind of stuff. I think, what kind of a dad are you telling your... That's what you told him to do. See, you find comfort in the wrong things. That's, that's not what you should find comfort in doing. If you practice speaking the wrong words, they're going to come out in stressful times. Don't say it's an accident. It's not an accident because it's an accident because you practiced it. Amen anyway. <laughs> We go on despising the gifts of God. This is another thing that we can, we can do. We can become really good at despising the gifts of God. Sometimes, you know, things come in and uh, we have an opportunity to hear the Word of God. Brother Keith used to talk about that. He said he got some tapes from Brother Hagin when he first didn't even know who he was. He was listening to him. He said, oh, wow, this is awesome stuff. He gave them to other people. He said, you ought to listen to this. You ought to hear this. He'd come back a week later, two weeks later, a month later. Did you listen to it? Oh, yeah, we, I didn't get to it yet. Despising the things of God. They didn't despise the things of God. They just didn't listen to it yet. Now you despise the things of God. You had the things of God there. You didn't, you didn't do it. There's all kinds of things that we can do to despise the things of God, isn't there? I mean, isn't there, isn't there some things we can do with that? And just despise what is it? God has given us gifts. He's given us prophets. He's given us gifts of healings. And sometimes we see some of those ministers and they come along and we look at something, oh, I don't like that about them. And we despise the ministry that they have. And that's not a thing that we should do. Hang on for just a minute. I'm getting a message here. Yeah, it's getting a text. Let me just, real quick, I just want to send this back to them. Yeah, yeah, that was, that's good. Why is that funny? You don't expect me to pull my cell phone out and talk to somebody? And why do you do it? <laughs> Come on. I'm not saying it happens here a whole lot, but you know, you go into other churches, big churches, and, and you sit in there in a the, the meeting and people are worshiping God, and how many people are on their phone? You're sitting there and you're, you're supposed to be listening to the Word of God and getting something on your phone. Now, so I, I, I heard this said, people say, you know, you're addicted to your phone. That's hogwash. That's the most garbage thing out there. It's, it's garbage. I have a phone and I use the phone. My phone is a great help to me. I am not addicted to it. I know I'm not. Now, I'll give you a case in point. You know I make bunk beds. One of the most important tools I have for making bunk beds is a cordless drill. It is so important. I have two of them that, I go, that go out with me. I have five all over the shop. But two go with me. I never go on a bunk bed delivery without two cordless drills. Never. I will go back and get one if I forgot it. Am I addicted to it? No. Do you know how long it takes to put a bunk bed together without a cordless drill? About three times longer. Instead of being there for an hour, I'll be there for three. If I have the cordless drill... It goes a whole lot faster. Now, if, if ever, it has never happened to me yet. I've been making these beds for 15, 16 years. Never happened to me yet that a cordless drill has broken on me. Never happened. But if it did, I have a backup. I can go out there and get the backup. It's, it's there. Because it's there to, to, to it helps out. It's, it's, it's huge. Am I addicted to it? It's a tool that helps me get it done. My phone is a tool that helps me get some things done. My computer is a tool that helps me get some things done. Thank God for computers. You know how much study you can do in the Word? How much faster you can study the Word with a computer? Oh, man. 
I mean, you can search stuff out and you can get all the verses that you want on a particular topic or a particular word. Or, and just in seconds, you can have it all in front of you. Instead of having to spend hours putting it all together, finding it all and getting it in front of you, and then you can start studying on those things. You can, I can do it in seconds. Oh, it's good. They're a good tool. They're a good help. But don't let a tool become something it's not supposed to be. There's another, another aspect on this. I told you we might get into this. But um, do you know, God has given us tools and he's told us how to use them and we don't always do it. This dropped into me and meditating on some things a while ago. You all know how, how Eve messed up in the garden? She had part of what God said, but not, not completely what God said. God says in the day that we eat it or touch it, we will die. It's not quite what God said, was it? It didn't help keep her out of sin, did it? Do you know one of the sexual morality is all over this country? And one of the reasons for it is if you polled Christians, let alone non-Christians, if you polled Christians and asked them, why should you not have sex before marriage? If you were to ask Christians, why should you not have sex before marriage? You will get all kinds of reasons, and I'll bet you none of them will be biblical. Most of the time that you ask that question to people, they'll say, well, God doesn't want you to. Well, you're not supposed to. Well, it's just for marriage. Well, that's true. It, it, it's true. But there's, there's no reason. You know why no one knows what the Bible says about it? Because no one knows what the purpose of it is. And so what, we ha- what happened was, in the Christian church, in order to keep people from sexual morality, we taught them the wrong things about sex. We taught some people come out of, uh, out of that and they think sex is dirty. And they think, think that sex is just something that God gave us to appease our flesh and, you know, he looks the other way. And, or that sex was given to us simply to have kids. Think about it this way. How many kids, if you're married and have kids, how many kids do you have? How many times did you have sex? Is God the most inefficient God around? See, there's another purpose to it. It's a whole other purpose. And we don't talk about it a whole lot because we think, well, sex is dirty. That's uh, yeah, it's not something. To... Who created it? God did. I had a pastor down in uh, Tulsa, and he told, I don't know if this is exactly true, but I sure couldn't come up with an example to to stop him. He said, um, or to to, to, uh, to thwart what he was saying, he said that uh, humans, men and women, are the only creatures God created that have sex face to face. Interesting. Why is that? Now, if you think, you think about this, why do, why do animals mate? For the purpose of offspring. Is there any other reason? There's no other reason. But people are not the same thing. People are different. They, they don't just have sexual relationships to have kids. There's another purpose to it. And see, we weren't taught the purpose. The Bible teaches the purpose very clearly. But because we're in the state of Eve and we don't know, we think, well, sex is dirty. Sex isn't good. It's, you know, God doesn't want you to have it. God doesn't want you to have any fun. In the day that you eat it, you will surely die. All that sort of stuff, right? The Bible is very clear about why God put sex in, in, uh, in the world. It's the lack of our knowledge of that reason that single people are having sex and married people are not. Well, amen. <laughs> I don't know. I thought some people might be interested in that. We can just go on to something else, though. I mean, isn't this kind of odd? If you, if you go around, you do a poll around with people, you will find out that single people have more sex than people that are married. Why would that be? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, you all know this verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What does that mean? Well, it means, you know, that over the course of time, they become intertwined and their personalities become... And No, it means they have sex. I'm sorry, that's what it means. Well, I, that's up to interpretation. No, it's not. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for food... 
but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God has raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he was joined to a harlot is one body with her? How did you become joined to the harlot to become one? Did you get married? Did you interlock your personalities and your feelings? And How did you do it? Or do you not know that he was joined to a harlot? How, how does he mean joined? <laughs> Come on. They had sex together. We're allowed to talk about these things in church. Or, you know, it's, it's in the Bible. I think we are. Joined to a harlot is one body with her. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he is joined to the Lord as one spirit with him. Flee sexual morality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual morality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, he's going to go on here just a little bit. But the purpose, folks, of sexual relationships between a man and a woman is to bring them together to make them one. Not having kids. It is to bring them together to make them one. When you are not married to a person, you become one with someone you're not married to. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands and don't raise your hand on this or don't, you know, just just look on. Don't pretend. Or How many have, have, you can think back and you had sexual relationships with someone who is not your spouse and every once in a while you get tied back into that time. Why? Because you became one with them. That's why you're having trouble. God says, I wanted to spare you of that. I'm not trying to deprive you of anything. I'm trying to spare you of that. Don't be doing it. If you do it, it's going to happen. None of the things that people are taught about sex, why they shouldn't do it, the Bible teach. What it teaches you is this. It is a tool. That tool will bring you to two of you together. If you have a marriage and you're taking sex out of your marriage, don't wonder why the two of you aren't close. Well, amen. That's a good, good preaching right there. It's good stuff. You're married. You ought, you, ought to, uh, you ought to have sex often. Should. Not for kids. Because it helps the two of you. Uh, yeah, but you, I just don't want to anymore. Well, that's okay. Let's deal with that. Are we okay? We're at noon right now. Anybody want to stick around? Them? <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. He wrote to him about some stuff. You know why they wrote to him? Because Paul came over to the city of Corinth, and the city of Corinth liked to... They had, they had sex for kids in the marriage. That's why he got married. He got married, he had sex for kids. So that's it. If you need another kid, let's go. That's it. If you want to have sex for fun, you went down to the temple. There were priests and priestesses, and you know, you, you carried on with them. Paul comes on that, then they get born again, and Paul says, the one you're married to, that's it. That's all you're supposed to have sex with. That's no, no one else. So, so they wrote to him and says, I didn't really love this person. I don't really like this person. I'm not really attracted to this person. We're just, you know, it's an arranged marriage. We're here to have kids. And Really? So they wrote to him. And they said, they asked him about it. Can you clarify this a little bit? So, now concerning the things which you wrote to me. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, don't, now wives, don't go out there and quote this to your husband. Because he goes on. <laughs> Nevertheless, because of sexual morality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to the wife the affection due her. What kind of affection is he talking about? Oh, honey, I really like you. Oh, honey, I've just... <laughs> what kind of affection is he talking about? Mm-hmm. Physical. The wife does not have authority over her own body. Hello. I'm sorry, dear, I have a headache. Sorry, you don't have authority in that area. <laughs> right? Isn't that what the Bible says? <laughs> you do not have authority in that area. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> I have authority in that area. That's what it says. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Husband, you say, I'm tired. Tough. You don't have authority in this area. Now, come on. Most times, folks, you say you're tired. What happens when you get started? Am I embarrassing anybody here? You see, the reason you can't talk about this stuff is because it's been ingrained in us that this is dirty and that God doesn't want it. That's wrong. God put this in your marriage to bring you two together. If you don't do this, if you don't do what God says, that's why you two are being driven apart. You need to fix it. Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time. Whole lot said in there. Don't deprive one another. Don't deprive each other of what? Hugs? What's it talking about? Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time. So if there is depriving, it's for a time and both people agree to it. Not one. If one person says, I don't want to have sex anymore, that's not consent, is it? Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So if you are going to abstain, uh, the fasting and prayer needs to pick up. If there is abstention without fasting and prayer, you're wrong. And there also needs to be consent. Isn't that what the Bible says? And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of control. Well, I don't think that's true. Well, then you're doing just like Saul and you're practicing your own way. Hello. Whatever you practice... You get good at. Now, something some jarred me a, a number of weeks ago. Somebody uh, from church, I'm not sure who, who it was, they put up this interesting article and I went over there and read it. And um, it was about a woman who uh, uh, wrote the article and she was written, you know, before they got married, she was, was thinking, you know, sex would be all this fun. And that once they got married, she would never become like one of those people who didn't have sex in their marriage. But, you know, the kids came, they got tired and eventually it happened and they weren't. And uh, she talked about, she gave the story about how she just, you no, know, I needed to dedicate myself and put myself in there and we needed to do that. And uh, their marriage was helped out for it. God's given you a tool. Use what God gave you to bring the two of you together. It's not dirty. It's not horrible. God does not look the other way. God gave you something. Make sure that you use it. Otherwise, you are practicing Going against the Word of God. If you're single, you can practice going against the Word of God by having sex. If you're married, you can practice going against the Word of God by not. Why do you think it is that left to the world, single people have sex, married people don't? Whose hand do you see in that? Uh, These people, husbands and wives who got too spiritual for sex, get right into the enemy. You need to be ready. Do we cover that enough? <laughs> Everybody survive okay? We all good? All right. Still love your pastor? <laughs> you can get in the area of worship. And you, cannot, you can get real good at not doing the right things in worship. You can be thinking about other things, doing other things, instead of worshiping God. Just because you sat through a half hour worship service does not mean you worshiped. You've got to get ready to practice the right thing. Get yourself ready. Now, even in, the, in this worship team members, you can practice some of the wrong things. You can practice being late for practice, making everybody else wait. You can practice not being here in church on time on Sunday. You can practice it. Because, you know, if you, if you do it on a regular basis, you become good at it. Don't do it. You can practice not being ready for the song. <laughs> yeah, by not listening to it, by not going over to it, and wait till you get here for practice or, or, or Sunday. Just don't do anything with it until then, right? You can do that, and then you're not ready. And then God calls you to perform, and, well, can't quite do it. You need to get yourself ready. Darlene Check, uh, she had a wonderful story. I didn't hear this from her. I heard it from someone else. It was the daughter of a... Of a I can't think of her name. Oh, she, she is so fun to listen to. I just uh, I can't think of her name right now. But she tells a story about Darlene. She says, Darlene, when she got started in praise and worship, when she got started doing the albums, do you know what she was doing? She was a secretary in the church. 
And there was someone else, they were all set up to record a worship album at the church. They had all the sound, they had all the things set up, and the, the worship leader had a falling out. They, they did something they weren't supposed to do, and, and they were no longer a worship leader. And now we're all ready to do an album, and no one to do it. And Darlene was in the office, and she says, well, I've written some songs. Maybe we could do those. And the first album that they did was, was hers. She wasn't even the supposed, person who was supposed to do the album. But she had songs ready. She was prepared. She was ready. I'll tell you, it was a great story. The, the lady who tells it, she tells it far better than I do. I've, I was trying to find a way we could bring her out here to church and just she'll tell the story. She's got one of those voices. She sounds like a little kid. She sounds like she's this tall. She says she orders pizza. And uh, is your mommy home? Does she know that you're... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sunday school teachers too. You got to make sure that you're ready. Be on time. Be prepared. Get your get your lesson. Be meditating on it. Let God deal with you. All the ushers and greeters. Got to make sure that you're ready. We've got ministries that you know they're not quite going on. Well, we don't think we really need a nursery. Well, then how are we going to get people to come on in without a nursery? If they have kids, they're going to come in. Yeah. Go someplace else. Well, maybe, you know, well, no one's rather they're running it right now. Well, maybe you're called to run it. Maybe you're not doing it. People suffer. Maybe there's something out there that you're supposed to start, something you're supposed to do. You're not doing it. You're not getting the preparation, and the body of Christ is not benefiting from the thing that, that you need to do. Now, folks, these things we talked about that are negative, these are not weaknesses. They are not problems. They are sin. You need to fix it. How do you break the hold of that thing? Well, practice doing the right thing. Practice doing it the right way. You've been practicing doing it the wrong way. Practice doing it the right way. Practice being joyful. Just practice it. Instead of coming home, well, I need to, I need to drink. No, you need to be joyful. Be thankful. Oh, I need to cuss. No. Be thankful. Let thankful words come out. Practice that. Practice being loving. Practice being helpful. Practice being encouraging. Practice being respectful. Practice these things. Put this in your outline for you. When the teachings of God's, God's Word become formulas, well, I've got to sacrifice. I've got to make sure that all that's done so we can go into battle. When the teachings of God's Word become formulas, we perform instead of principles we live by, the power will depart. You cannot just do what... The Word of God teaches you to do by formula. You've got to do it by because it's a principle that you live by. Don't get caught up in the wins and losses. If God's principles are not honored, the way is wrong. The way is wrong. What are you practicing? Are you like Saul? Saul practiced the wrong things and never was ready to step up. He was in a place and was never ready to step up to the call. Don't be a Saul. Abraham, we looked at last week, messed up, messed up, messed up, messed up, finally got it right. And we look at him as one of the founding fathers of faith. But we don't look at Saul for that. He never practiced the right things. What are you practicing? What are you going over and over and over? Are you getting yourself ready? Would you all stand up with me? This morning, folks, we have communion Sunday. Our rushers are going to Come and distribute the elements. I know I went longer on you in here, but important things for us to learn and make sure that we do. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, what he was telling the disciples is, I'm going to give you some things I want you to do on a regular basis because I want you to practice these things. I want these things to remind you of what is to come and what you are to do. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Before supper even began, they all sat down at the table and Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Salvation is divided up into two parts. The first part is about our body. The second part is about our spirit. He said, my body has been broken for you. I took on my body the beatings, the lashes, the rods, the stripes, On my body, I bore sickness and disease so that you don't have to. He already bore it in his body. 
If he already bore it in his body, you do not need to bear it on your own. We need to remember what God did. He did for us. He did it completely. There's nothing more that has to be added. Sometimes we get our practice wrong. And we begin to pray things like, God, take this sickness away from me, please. Oh, God, just I want some relief. No, that's not it. God says, I already took it away. Now you walk in the light of that. Let us remember, because it's so easy to forget. Let us remember what God did. Let's eat together. After supper was over, he took the cup. He said, this represents my blood. Just poured out for you. Forgiveness of sin is done by the blood of Jesus. Not by our acts of penance. Not by the things that we do. But what Jesus did. Because what we do is totally inadequate. But what he did washes us clean. So always remember. It's what he did that washes us clean. This room. Rest on his work. And Father, I wear your righteousness, not my own. Give you the praise and the glory for it. Thank you, Father. Let's drink together. Glory to God. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you for the new covenant that we live in. Sickness and disease is done away with. Sin has been paid in full. And we walk in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Before we go, I know we saw some uh, praise reports coming in. My wife, uh, wife coming in to, to read us our praise reports. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. Oh, that's good. Okay, Tony says she um, found her lost fa- cell phone. <laughs> Praise God for that. Um, yes. Um, Jolly says he's back from training, safe and sound, and all went well. He traveled to Savannah, Georgia to help a new couple struggling in their relationship. God intervened miraculously. Glory to God. Amen. Um, Ethel wants to give thanks for the still small voice that speaks to her and encourages her and leads her. Amen. The Holy Ghost. Oh, that's, um, okay, Ara and Anto say, give thanks to God for giving their mother health, strength, and joy, and for adding another year to her life. Yesterday was her birthday. Amen. Praise God. Um, also, Anto says, last month a review of her performance at work was done. My review was very good. I thank God. Also, I got nominated by the director of my area to be on a special team. Um, this surprised me as I was told everyone involved in the decision-making had me in mind for the team. Praise God. Thank God for his favor. Hallelujah. 